Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, and thank you for joining us on Three Women Three Ways. We're the show that tackles the tough topics, and I think we actually have a pretty tough topic today. We have uh, a show with. Uh, Joan uh, Meyer, who is a professor of clinical law at, at George Washington, or yeah, George Washington, right? Joan, right? Okay, yep. Joan, and I am getting an echo of feedback, but you're not using speakerphone at this point, Joan. I'm not sorry, but I had to just open the door briefly. Oh, okay. No, it, I'm definitely getting better? feedback. So hopefully the listeners are not hearing that. Hopefully it's, I'm the only one that's hearing that, and uh, we will proceed. But um, our show today is one that's really near and dear to my heart because we're talking about custody cases involving abusers. And for the last several years, I've become more and more aware, and I've seen the research uh, showing more and more how our family court judges are just becoming egregious, in my opinion, on awarding custody when there is abuse in the, the, the mix. So is this true, or am I just getting, you know, oddball cases that I'm looking at, or what's the story here? So I went to an expert. I went to Joan Meyer. Joan, thank you for joining us. You have uh, participated in a study. You've done a study, and uh, you've looked at that issue. And am I overreacting here? Um, well, if I can just back up a little bit, Heather, um, I don't think you're overreacting, but we don't yet have the data, the, the really the comprehensive okay. data we need. Um, I uh, first got exposed to this issue when I wrote an article in the early 2000s about custody and abuse and thinking I was going to be writing about the problem of abusers getting visitation that was unprotected with their kids. And I found to my amazement that um, it, all the cases I could find, and at the time it was only about 40 published opinions at the appellate level involving custody and abuse, um, all except for two of these cases, the courts had actually awarded joint or sole custody to alleged abusers, but some of them were also adjudicated abusers or admitted abusers. Um, okay. What was interesting to me was that two-thirds of those were reversed on appeal, which sort of led helped encouraged me to launch what I did, which is my appellate project, DV Leap. And since I've been working for DV Leap, doing appellate work all over the country and trainings, et cetera, we hear probably from about 20 mothers a month, and they're almost always mothers, who are in family court litigation, desperately trying to keep their kids safe, and it's an uphill battle at best. So anecdotally, this is very widespread. The domestic violence organizations all over the country, if you go to a conference, you hear the same story from everyone who works in this field, that they're being overwhelmed with these desperate calls for help from mothers who are trying to keep their kids safe. But empirically, the data we have is kind of a lot of small studies. We don't yet have a a large universal study, and that's what I'm working on. Okay, terrific. Do you have funding for that? Yeah, um, so uh, I did a sort of informal survey, uh, which I can talk about in a minute, and as a result of the survey, which had some interesting results, I applied to the National Institute of Justice, which is very interested in this issue area because they, like the Department of Justice generally, have become aware of what a problem there is in the field, and they put out um, a solicitation for research into the family court situation, and we, I was awarded a three-year grant to do a, a sort of a major overview of what's going on empirically across the country. Um, if you'd like, I'll tell you just a bit about that study. Yes. Or should I well, wait? Well, first of all, just let me say I'm so happy to hear this because I also hear the anecdotal ones, and they are crushing. They are heart-crushing. And the most recent one that I heard about was uh, occurring is occurring right now in Michigan State, this is just one example, but there is a woman and a, and a, and a, a man who dispute custody. Um, the man apparently has been abusive. I, I'm not aware of whether that's been documented. However, the man's children, the, the family court judge, ordered the children who range in age from about 9 to like 15, the children apparently refused to see their father in visitation. The family court judge asked the children why they wouldn't see him. The oldest child said, because he's mean, I've seen him hit my mother, and I don't want to have anything to do with him. The judge went berserk, in my opinion, and started berating the child, saying that he didn't know anything, what he was talking about, that his father was a wonderful man, 
and that, in fact, if this child and these children refused to see their father and spend time with their father, um, it was obviously some sort of alienation situation, and that she then sent the children to a juvenile detention facility until they decided that they agreed to go see their father. Um, the, I don't know whether the children ultimately agreed or not, but the last I heard was about a month ago where the children, the judge decided they could leave the juvenile detention facility, but only to go to a uh, reunification program. And the mother had been cut out of the picture. Yeah, I actually was asked to consult on the case, and I can't talk about anything that that happened when okay. I was consulting. But I can fill you in a little bit more from the public um, record. He, uh, that there was such an outcry after the judge sent the children to detention that I think within a week or two she she sent them to summer camp instead, quote unquote. <laughs> the point in her mind was to get them away from their mother. Um, of so they I think they spent some period of time in the summer at summer camp. Then I think they were brought back, and I can't remember what the record said. Is I think maybe they went back to live with their father over protest. Um, they were put into this reunification program, and the last that I heard from the public record was that um, he was proposing that they be sent, they be split up because he thinks that they're united against him. They should, one should go to foster care, one should go to boarding, therapeutic boarding school, and, and maybe he would keep one. I forget. Something like that. Um, in the meantime, well, right, the judge Jerry, That's has, a good plan for raising children, isn't that? Don't you think? And they love their mother. Yeah. Their mother loves them. There's nothing wrong with her as a parent except the judge's opinion that she's responsible for their hatred for their father. Um and the judge, not only did she do what you described, but she was so vicious in court, she, she accused them of being like a Charles Manson cult. And she laughed at them and um, kind of contemptuously pointed at them and, and, and made gestures that looked like she thought they were crazy and, and likened them to Charles Manson. And so as a result of her behavior, she's being charged with ethical violations by the Judicial Conduct Commission in Michigan, which is very well, thank odd. God. Thank and God. I think she's been more than charged. I think they may have actually made a finding, but I can't remember for sure. Uh, um, I, I, there's information about is, that on our Facebook page. Can you give that out? On the DV Leap Facebook page. It's uh, DV Leap. like in domestic violence, Leap, L-E-A-P. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it stands so for Domestic Violence Legal Empowerment and Appeals Project. That's our nonprofit. Yeah. The and and the thing about this case is as egregious as it as it is and as as heartbreaking as it is, why is it that people, especially the people that I've seen from courts, and I'm not talking just judges, I'm talking guardians ad litem, I'm talking forensic psychologists, I'm talking, you know, all of the the court personnel that I have encountered, there are so few who actually understand domestic violence and who so few who actually maybe think that if a child doesn't want to see its father, there's maybe a reason that the, fa- the child doesn't want to see the father. I mean, I've raised two kids. I cannot tell you how much I understand how it doesn't matter how much a mother wants a kid to do something. Chances are they're not going to do it if they don't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know so what you're talking about. So hard I to understand a that if a person is mean to you, you don't want to go to see them. Right. I think this is one of those overdetermined problems. There are many different factors all pointing in this direction of terrible outcomes. I think one is the one you pointed to, which is ignorance about abuse, domestic violence and child abuse, and a a really deep ignorance of how domestic violence affects children, that children actually feel hurt and angry and afraid when someone hits their mother. You don't have to be hit yourself to have those feelings. Children who are typically, um, whether we like it or not, raised by their mothers, even in intact families, um, are often bonded with their mothers. We consider that a good thing in normal life. Um, And if someone, especially a parent, attacks their other parent who they're bonded to, they're going to feel bad. I don't think most of these people understand that for starters. I think most of these people do not understand the dynamics of domestic violence and how it's more than just a hit here or there. It's a whole uh, constellation of behaviors that are often nonviolent but very intimidating that we often call coercive control, lots of control, monitoring, surveillance, lots of verbal abuse and intimidation, isolation, um, undercutting mothers' relationship with their children. Um, And then many, many men who are abusive to their partner or their wife 
may not intend to be abusive to their kids, but that's their persona. That's how they do intimacy. They do it by dominating and controlling and expecting to be catered to and waited on and, and treated as the king. And when their children don't do that, their children get the full brunt of their anger. So, yeah, and the children, whole shall you know, be even, obeyed type of thing. Yeah. Right, right. And as you point out, children are very hard to raise for the best of parents. Children are challenging because they are willful and strong-minded and they're not cooperative all the time. Um, and that's hard for a really generous, good parent. But for a parent who's very self-centered and entitled and believes everyone's supposed to take care of him and can't empathize with a child, um, it's intolerable. So they make very bad parents in many cases. Um, well, and as you, if all, I can interrupt here, as you pointed sure. out, Joan, in those situations, the children and the mother, it's, it's kind of like they're on one side of this war. They band together, and they do yeah. become very close, I think, in these relationships, yeah. because you are together, and you are the only ones who understand this dynamic, because you exactly. go outside I think that's the family right. unit, and you find people like this judge who are telling, his, telling the child that your father's a wonderful man. He's perfectly um, lovely. Everyone loves him, right? Everyone outside yes. of the family thinks he's a lovely guy, so you're crazy. And the yeah. other thing so, is that the courts... So the mom and the children kind of, you know, really are, are, are pulled together as a unit to try and survive this kind right. of behavior. They band and together because no one understands. Yeah, and then you go to a court where not only is the abusive father given more access, but the, the only anchor that these children may have is removed from them. And I don't understand why courts, okay, it seems to me in the domestic violence situations I've seen where the mother is abused, the mothers seem to try and protect the children and say, okay, well, you know, I, I don't know very many cases, cases unless they're absolutely, totally egregious, where the mother says, no, I do not want my children around that man, period, the end, and that's what I'm going to insist right. on. I would say but the same, and I've been representing mothers for over 20 years. Um, we often had to explain to mothers why we thought it wasn't safe for their children to be unsupervised with their father, because they all wanted their children to have a father and to see him. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yet they go to the courts in these situations where the father is saying, oh, well, look, she did this. She alienated my children. And the courts go, then, by God, she can't have any contact with them whatsoever. We're snatching those kids away. Right. So I, I don't understand. There are I many, mean, it seems so yeah, how can it happen? Uh, it, 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 so I think it's many-layered. I mean, I do think there's misogyny. I think there's a willingness to believe that women are crazy, pathological, and liars, and malicious. You know, they're vengeful ex-wives. That stereotype is very strong in the courts. Um, there is a desire. There's a, I wrote an article about this, actually, when I did that study that I mentioned, um, the early survey. Um, uh, I wrote an article about why courts are so unwilling to protect children in custody battles back before I had done the research I'm talking about now. Um, and I talked about this strong desire that courts have to make fathers equal parents, to change our culture so fathers act as full parents. And so when fathers come to court and say, I want to be a full parent, and mothers say, no, no, he's not safe, the court feels like, oh, she's just a vengeful ex-wife or she's overprotective or whatever, and I'm going yep. to do the egalitarian thing and give him equal or more because she's a bad mom because she's trying not to make it equal. Yeah. So and there's yet, this enormous commitment to equality of parenting when a father asks for parenthood. So, so mothers well, are kind it's, of it's pursuing an grotto when they don't want it. Well, it's commitment to parenting when right. it's the father that's asking for it. I've seen right. case after case where the mother is saying, I don't say, I think his parenting should be restricted. And, and it's not, I mean, even in the face of documented domestic violence or egregious violence, they still ha are reluctant to completely remove the father from the picture. And yet oh, and even so more, they're, they're reluctant to keep the, the children safe. Yeah, I mean, most of the time, even even mothers in cases like that still want or are willing to to accept visitation if it can be safe, supervised. Yeah. Um, but yeah. most courts won't even do that. They see that as very punitive. And frankly, as um, some of my psychological colleagues will tell you, um, for children who've been traumatized, whether it's supervised or not, does not eliminate the re-traumatization of having to be with someone who's unsafe and who denies what he's done. It's a trigger for re-traumatization. So, you know, but at least physically they can be safe in that setting, and even that courts are reluctant to do. Um, so I think there are a lot of issues. I mean, and one of them is there's a lot of stereotypes running amok, both that fathers who want custody must be good by definition. Secondly, that we can judge who's telling the truth and who's a good parent by looking at them in court, which, frankly, all the research into credibility judgments by judges generally points to the fact that judges 
judges are no better than the woman or man on the street at judging truthfulness. Um, uh, judges have this belief that this is their this is their skill set. This is what they are and what they excel at and what they're expert at is judging truthfulness. The fact is is that they're not good at it at all, and they get snowed all the time by the guys. And the women who are traumatized don't come off well. So there's that. Yep. There's not understanding the depth of domestic violence and how traumatizing it is. There's a real minimizing of abuse. It's sort of like, oh, so we hit her once, big deal. I mean, I see that yeah. kind of minimization all the time, and there's a complete dismissal of the trauma that's attached to the use of violence and intimidation and, and power and control. And then there's, you know, there's uh, vengefulness by the courts, frankly, toward women who want to restrict access. And then the last thing is that um, there's no understanding of all the impact of all of these things on children and the link between men who are abusive to their wives and the risks to the children. So one of the things I've started training on the most, because I realize that, that courts really don't understand this, is that if the father never laid hands on the children but was abusive to some degree to the, to the mother, that does not mean that he's going to be safe for the children after separation, because what we see is the risk to children goes way up once the mother is no longer there to protect them and um, the father has them alone. And often yeah. once, once he loses his adult victim, he turns on the children as a sort of indirect way to punish her. Well, and I think sometimes it's also the the father will then see the children, especially if they have any kind of loyalty to the mother, as somehow an extension of her. Exactly. So, so the and father so can't tolerate. To, right. And ironically, yeah. this alienation claim that courts use against mothers who are trying to protect their kids, it's really abusive fathers and, and probably abusive mothers to the extent they're out there, and they are, um, but abusers who are the most alienating parents because they really want to turn the children against the other parent. So yeah. uh, when a father gets access to the kids and the kids are more bonded to the mother, the father sets about destroying that relationship as much as possible. And, that, and we see well, that Well, even in time. that case that you were, we started the show with uh, in Michigan, I mean, what is this father doing? He's, he's getting access to the kids right. now. Mother is cut out of right. the picture, and what's he doing? He's divvying he up those children. He's getting because rid he, of the ones that are, he can't right. just buffalo. That he can't deal and, with, and, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. So now, and, and separating and them because they support each other. What's best for children? Is it right. ever best to separate siblings in a situation like that? I mean, I have never read any research that indicates I mean, that separating siblings is good. Well, you know, if you accept their analysis, which is that these children are brainwashed and they're crazy, they have a false belief about their father and they're reinforcing it in each other. If it were true that they were brainwashed and crazy, one might want to separate them. But there's absolutely no reason to believe that. There's, not, there's no basis for that. It's just a label. Let me give out our phone number, Joan. Uh, we do have the chat line open. If you want to type in a question or a comment, I'll be happy to share it. Um, also, I want to give out our, our call-in phone number. We'd love to hear from you. Um, and I know I've gotten many calls on this topic before, so don't hesitate to give us a call. 646 646-378-0430. 646-378-0430. And give us a call, uh, share with us your observations, your stories, if you'd like, and your questions about this really important topic. Now, Joan, Joan when you were talking uh, about the courts and, and the court's opinion, um, I, I, I just absolutely, um, in, in looking at this issue, I came up with, you know, that, that it appears to me that the courts operate under three tenets. One is is that uh, if he abuses her, he's not going to abuse her, the kids. Mm-hmm. The other one is every child needs every father. Yep. And the other one is she lies. Yeah, you got it. I mean, that's just it. I mean, it seems to me those are the, the three tenets that the, courts, the family courts operate under. The other thing I wanted to share with you is I did have a family court judge on our show some time ago, and I asked... Tell me, please, as a judge standing, you know, sitting at the bench, you have two people in front of you, and one of them has documented domestic violence in their background. How do you make the decision which of those two people gets custody? And her response was, well, you have two people in front of you, and one is just a mess. She can't even keep her own life in order. She's just totally a mess. And you've got another one who's in control, and he's living his life. So if the domestic violence isn't that bad, we will give the children to the man who seems to be in control. That's actually very helpful to understand the way judges think. I mean, they're just looking at something very superficial. They're yes. not having that, – that, I would add to your list of 
of think, ways they think that they have no clue about children and what children need. They look at who they like better. And the parent who seems more in control and smoother and more pleasant to be with is the parent they like better. So that's the one who gets the kids. It's got nothing Regardless to do with what children need. violence is all about control. Yeah. And if you are right. a woman who has, uh, has had a relationship with a man that you know gets his way, and this man then tells you, I'm going to take away your children, why on earth wouldn't you be upset right. and frantic right. and Right. I, I, I mean, uh, that doesn't take a psychology degree to figure out that dynamic. And right, and I guess reason... the, the judge's feeling is that, but I don't want to punish the children. Just because he has caused her to be hysterical and crazy, I don't want to submit, subject the children to her hysteria and craziness, and he's a safer parent because he's more together. I mean, I think they, they sometimes when you push back on that in exactly the way you did, well, he's the bad guy, he's the reason she's messed up. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that the kids have to be with a messed up mother. I'm not. I'm not going <laughs> to um, punish the children just because maybe he did wrong. I, I mean, there is this attitude. It's a very superficial assessment of custody, and it's based on the wrong things. It's based on who they like, who they respect, and who they think is a better person in some superficial sense, a more together person, not based on children's bonding, children's attachment, and what children's need, and also what's bad for children. No recognition that abuse in the family is bad for children, that, it, you know, that they suffer, that they're traumatized by it, that they don't feel safe with a father who commits it. No recognition that that's going to affect the children. They're just judging the two people in front of them, and they like him better. He wins. It's kind of at that level. I really think much custody litigation is nothing more than a popularity contest with the judge. Chase, how often have you seen this, Joan? How often do we... Um, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, that we don't have firm data on how often this is happening, but anecdotally, from the from the contacts you've well, had and, and from your work with DV Leap, how often is this happening? I mean, we it's happening so often that every domestic violence organization in the country, as far as I can tell, is deluged with these desperate calls for help. And the Department of Justice has been so deluged that they, they've converted one of their grant programs in the Office of Violence Against Women to focus on family court. And then, as I said, NIJ is now converting some of its research stream to focus on family court. So it's got to be very, very widespread. I can't tell you what percentage of custody battles look like this, but I can tell you that the research shows that roughly 75%, and it's amazing. All these different studies come up with the same statistics. 75% of cases that go to court that are, that are battled, uh, you know, contested litigation over custody, 75% of the time there's a history of abuse alleged. So what that tells you is that roughly three quarters of cases that go to court, you've got these issues. And from what we're seeing, the vast majority of the time, the courts react in the ways we're describing here. Now, what I can tell you is some preliminary research from our pilot study that, that helped us get our longer-term study. And we wanted, what we're really looking for in these studies is to measure empirically who's alleging abuse and who's winning custody and are there custody switches and how do they correlate with what allegations of abuse and alienation. So, and we also want to show very simply what the courts don't seem to know or believe, which is that father, there's a gender bias for fathers in these courts, not for mothers. Everyone thinks, exactly. all these judges who are giving fathers extra custody think they're going against the grain. In fact, what they're doing is, is consistent with what all their brethren are doing, which is preferring fathers. So in the pilot study, we found 240 cases um, over a five-year period, I think it was, or a 10-year period, that fit our criteria. And we found that fathers won 67 to 72% of the time, what we're describing as a win, meaning they, they got more of what they wanted and the mothers lost what they wanted, whatever it was. And what we found was that 67% of the time where there was no abuse alleged, but there was an alienation claim by the father, the fathers won. But where mothers alleged abuse and there was an alienation claim, fathers won more, 72% of the time. Now listen to this. When mothers alleged child sexual abuse, fathers won 81% of the time. And oh when mothers God. alleged child abuse, fathers won 69% of the time. When mothers alleged DV, fathers won 74% of the time. Now, here's, here's the gem. Um, obviously, the courts were not crediting or validating the child abuse claims, but they credited and validated some of the domestic violence. 40% of the cases where they credited the domestic violence, the father still won the case. 
because okay, it so wasn't that's just basically looking at winning without defining what winning looked like. Okay. Now, if you want yeah. to get into custody switches, when do mothers lose custody in these battles? When when they allege child sexual abuse, they lost custody 88% of the time. When they allege child abuse, they lost custody 80% of the time. When they allege domestic violence, they lost custody 47% of the time. And again, most of these cases, the courts refused to credit the abuse, right? But in the seven cases out of the 240 where the court credited both the abuse and the father's claim of alienation, all of these cases, by the way, the fathers were alleging alienation or the mothers were. These were this was an alienation database. So you had an alienation claim and you had usually a contradictory abuse claim. Um, in the seven cases where the judge believed both, every one of them, the father, tr- uh, the alienation claim by the father trumped. So what they're saying is you can abuse your kids, but you are not allowed, if you're a mom, to alienate. And if you do, the abuser gets the kid. So, again, this is a small data set, not as scientific as the study we're doing now, but those were the findings we got. Yeah. And these are not – you know, here we're not questioning the facts. We're just saying this is what was alleged. This is what the court did. Absolutely frightening. In, in my yep. opinion, absolutely frightening. And very confirmatory. I mean, I think it was very, very important that we even did what we've done so far because anecdotally you're hearing everything that you're describing and I'm describing and we hear from w- women every day and every week, you know, as I said, probably 20 a month, uh, a new calls and emails about these cases and we, it feels like we're swimming in it everywhere. But no one believes us. The only people who believe us are the people in the field who are hearing it also. And some of the moms... Although, frankly, many of the moms call me and say, you won't believe what happened to me. And then I tell them exactly what happened to them. And they go, how did you know? <laughs> and I tell them it happened all over the country because they don't know it. But, but, um, but nobody knows this, which is why I really wanted to get the data, where it's not me saying I got 10 calls this week. It's us saying across the country in a 10-year period, just looking at the allegations and the findings and the rulings, this is what's happening out there. So that's what we're doing. Now, I have to tell you, Joan, there was a case several years ago in Washington State where I am. It was in eastern Washington, which is a more rural area. And um, I saw a news article on this, and I pulled it, and I put it in my tickler file because I thought, this I want to keep track of. What happened was there was a, a young girl, custody battle. Mom said father was sexually abusing child. And, of course, father got full custody. And so the court sent this child to live full-time with her father, who allegedly was sexually abusing her. Father lived with Grandpa, and Grandpa actually had convictions for pedophilia. Oh, my God. When that child reached age 18, and this is the, the, the article where I came, uh, where I saw it, she filed lawsuits against the courts, the guardians ad litem, everyone she could, and God bless whoever was helping her with that one. The problem is, uh, I could never follow up with it. I'm sure there was some sort of uh, agreement reached where everybody had to have a gag order because I I was Mm -hmm. never able to find out what happened with that. But my assumption is that these folks have protection. You can't sue a judge. In most places, you can't sue a guardian ad litem. These people make these decisions, and then they have no repercussions for it. That's correct. They're just willy-nilly. I went through the guardian ad litem training a couple years ago for King County. Uh, King County, uh, Washington, is actually fairly uh, up-to-date and with it when it comes to domestic Mm -hmm. violence, whatever. And they did the obligatory, you know, part of the training for these potential guardians ad litem uh, on domestic violence. They had three different speakers on domestic violence, and every single one of those speakers said things like, well, of course, women abuse as much as men, and that when you you as a guardian ad litem were faced with, you know, a situation where, you know, you had to evaluate between the father and the mother, you had to, of course, give, you know, 50-50. You just had to assume every, every both of those parents were absolutely equal going into it. Well, I used to do pre-sentence uh, reports for uh, a probation department. We never assumed that. If there was a paper trail, if this guy had, yeah. you know, we didn't yeah. assume that whatever right. he said was gospel. We based right. no, it on 
The and, and yet here are these this group of potential guardians ad litem who have life-altering decision-making ability. I mean, they don't make the decision, but nine times out of ten, the judge will go with whatever yeah. they recommend. It's and here they the are being told that it's all 50-50. It's all 50-50. It's crazy. Why even bother with a GAL and why even bother with a court? If you're going to do 50-50, save a lot of resources and time and energy and just do it. You know, you could do it yeah. on paperwork, and, you know, frankly, that would be safer than what's happening, which is that children are being given 100% to abusers in many cases, as as in the data yep. that I showed you. So, yeah, because um, it, as we said, it, it's it's almost like if it's the mother that they, they perceive as having some sort of root problem here, then we're going to punish her, and we're just going to take her right. away completely. Right. If it's the father right. who has some sort of DV or whatever that's documented, well, we'll just restrict his visitation. Right. But for some reason, he's still allowed to stay in the picture. Well, it, but what my data shows is that if the mom's an alienator and he's a child abuser, he still gets, he still wins, he still gets custody. Yes, but in the so it's not even just he, he has some, something in his he's record. Given, he's, he, right. he, he doesn't have she a loses custody because alienation is treated as far worse than abuse of a child. It's crazy. And the irony about alienation, and I've done a lot of scholarly writing about this and a lot of research into it too, is that there's no there there. It's a label. Everybody uses it. If you, and what I've been proposing and hoping, wishing courts would do, and I do this in trainings as well, I'm not saying there's no such thing. Everyone knows that parents denigrate each other when they're divorcing and even sometimes when they're not divorcing. And sometimes they put the children in the middle. It's bad. (laughs) Everyone knows it's bad. What we don't know is that it's, as bad as domestic violence or child abuse, or that it creates long-term scarring so the child can never trust an adult again or never have a relationship with that parent again. And it's that kind of claim that's completely non-empirically supported that has been used in court to act like it's worse than a little hitting or violence or manhandling or intimidation, um, as though it's somehow it's the end of the child's psychic life if, if, if their mother's an alienator. There's nothing to support it. It's a assump- set of assumptions, and it grows out of a theory. It grows out of parental alienation syndrome, which was invented by Richard Gardner. And Richard oh, Gardner, oh, you know, killed himself. He was mentally very disordered. Well, he was also the, in- the person who came up with the man-boy love association. Right. So he you was know, a man I mean, who believed really, in pedophilia. Basically, yeah, I did he believed a, I did in pedophilia. He invented on, this on, theory. He yeah. parlayed it to the courts. The courts ate it up. And then the slightly smarter people or more careful people said, well, we don't believe PAS, but there is something called parental alienation because everyone knows parents denigrate each other to the kids. And it is really, 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 really bad for kids. So we're going to disown PAS, but we're going to tout PA. And that's what we're dealing with now in the courts. And it's frankly yeah. harder. You know, as a litigator, we've tried to attack PAS, and a lot of people get that it's not considered valid science. But the smart evaluators who still want to use this kind of analysis, they just sort of duck the labeling and they just talk about it as though it's factual and they kind of use these quasi-scientific claims about how bad this behavior is for children and then this is what they recommend and courts still go with that, with or without the Uh, actual labeling. We were talking about an organiz- a national organization um, that uh, involves all the, the ancillary court personnel, judges, lawyers, uh, GALs, you know, I mean, you name it. And it sounds like a wonderful idea to have an organization where these people can support each other and everything. But this whole entire organization is wedded to parental alienation. And I noticed that um, in the last year or so, in their uh, information that they get, you know, that I get about their conferences or whatever, they've stopped referring to it. Uh, stopped referring to it as parental alienation syndrome, which of course right. has psychological definitions implied and, and can't possibly meet those science. definitions. So now right. they're just calling it parental alienation. Right. Right. And, and those are, are we talking about? Are we going to name the organization or not? Sure. The AFCC. Yeah, okay, um, so it's called. It stands for the um, uh, affiliated of, family and conciliatory courts. Uh, yeah, that's it. Fa- and and yeah. these conciliation people, courts. Oh my God, are they wedded to you? I mean, you, you well, think that somehow or other, you know, it, it's a requirement for membership that you buy into this nonsense. And it's not. You know, um, I just I want to I want to leaven that a little, if I may, Heather. Sure. Um, there are certainly people who are members of the AFCC who are doing the very best they can, and there are people who understand domestic violence who are members of the AFCC. And I've done trainings for them. I've had some good responses. There are um, some very good domestic violence experts working with them to try to bring them along. The problem that I'm seeing is that they are moving in some ways in a good direction on intimate partner violence. 
but they're not challenging. They're still touting all this parental alienation stuff, and they're not touching that. And as long as that stuff is allowed to thrive and spread and be seen and used as a trump for any kind of abuse claim, it really doesn't matter what they train on about abuse and IPV because alienation will just come in and, and go trump, and that's the end of the case. That's what we see. So I think, you know, there's efforts to make, to, to train and develop some guidelines. There's intimate partner violence custody guidelines that are being worked on by the AFCC with some domestic violence experts. And they're trying to do justice to the issues, but in my opinion, because they're ducking the alienation problem, the junk science problem, it really almost doesn't matter what's in there. And also the, the proposals are so complex that, no, that you can apply them however you want. They're not going to constrain anyone who thinks in an alienation kind of light. Um, right. So I'm not well, sure they're so going to help enough because they're too complicated. Let's talk a little bit about this whole junk science. Um, okay. Basically, when we say junk science and we're talking about custody, we're talking PAS, parental alienation. Um, and, um, well, there's, some, there's other but, stuff, too. But are there others? Yes. Let's talk about some of the others as well that are being bought up and eaten up with a spoon by courts and, and uh, decision makers when it comes to custody. Um, I don't know how often this is being used, but there's one uh, psychiatrist expert who's d- calling it parental alienation attachment disorder. He's trying to hang the theory onto attachment disorder because he claims, you know, he thinks attachment disorder is better supported scientifically. So he's trying to say this is a subset of that, which is kind of bizarre. But um, he's using that, and he's treated as credible. There are people who use Munchausen by proxy. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yes. Yeah. Construct. It's the idea that some parents, particularly mothers, it seems, uh, of course. get get some kind of <laughs> psychic idea that their kids are unwell, and they take them to all these doctors, and there's really nothing wrong with them, but they're projecting their own psychic problems onto their children. And some people use that in these abuse kind of cases. Um, and then there's another thing which is complex, and I don't know how much you want to go into it. It's called it's the idea that there's typologies of domestic violence. This is a very widely accepted view that there are different types of domestic violence, and I certainly accept that there are different types and different relationships and violence serves different purposes in some settings. And women use violence more than perhaps we know, but not typically in the coercive, controlling, intimidating ways that male batterers use it. Um, The problem is that these typologies are being misused. So there's the notion called situational couple violence or common couple violence. Uh, That's supposed to capture cases where it's not coercive control and intimidation, but it's just, you know, poor relationship skills and people losing their temper, um, in which that, that type of violence supposedly is equal between women and men, and it's often mutual and all this stuff. So there's this construct, but we don't really know how common it is. We don't really know how gendered it is. And people are taking this construct of non-coercive controlling violence, which they call situational, and they're slapping it on every case they see in custody court. And just assuming everything that they see is, oh, well, this isn't real domestic violence. This is that other kind. And I kind of call that junk science in the sense that the labels are being used way too sloppily and we don't have the scientific basis for knowing what's true about this so-called label or not knowing. There's a lot of speculation and and not much proof um, about the labeling. And in fact, we don't even know if we can accurately distinguish these types among people. So um, that's another kind of complex kind of junk science. And I call it junk science because of how it's being used in court, not necessarily the theory theorizing itself. Um, but I'm seeing that in a lot of my abuse cases where, and, I've, and I'm writing about that now, my latest article is about this, where um, these alienation evaluators come in and there's been adjudicated domestic violence by the father against the mother. That's a given. It's a fact. And then they look at it and they say, oh, I call this violence with a small V. This isn't you know, real domestic violence. And so everyone says, oh, then we don't have to even apply the statute that is triggered by domestic violence. We don't even have to apply the presumption against joint custody here because it's violence with a small V. It's not real domestic violence. And then it actually what's going on here is alienation. So all of the consequences of domestic violence that the law is supposed to have set up, which it has set up, become ignored because all of a sudden we're minimizing what this violence is based on a theory and a label that nobody really knows scientifically is accurate. So that's another problem I see. Yeah, I see that. Um, so what do we do about this, Joan? I mean, obviously you're trying to conduct data so that people can say, okay, this is, in fact, the problem. We see it here. Yeah. I'm trying um, to show empir- – yeah, that's the first thing. It's just neutral data to show that women are losing right and left and not only losing their case but losing their children when they allege abuse. And and we're going to have to hold up those data to 
other studies that are out of court of how frequently do women actually lie about abuse to say courts are finding that women lie about abuse 80, 90 percent of the time. What we know empirically in social research is that women lie about abuse five, six percent of the time. Therefore, courts are getting it wrong a lot. We know that. You know that we're going to have well, to show I that that has to be the case. That, that, you know, women and men lie about it about the same. Well, actually, the research I'm aware of shows that men lie about it much, much more. That you know, we know that really? men who batter deny. Women who use violence tend to overstate because they feel much more guilty about it. Um, so we don't even know when we do these phone surveys and women say, "Oh yeah, I use violence." We don't even know if they're overstating. And the men who say they use violence are t- typically understating. We, so we don't even know if we're accurate on these phone surveys, and those are the ones that people are relying on to say there's a lot of violence by women. So um, I'm not saying there isn't. There obviously is plenty of so-called violence in the simplest sense, you know, hitting, perhaps, pushing, shoving, pulling, whatever. That stuff goes on in both genders. The question really is, is the dangerous, the scary, the controlling stuff going on by both genders? And I think many of us agree that that's primarily a male dominance phenomenon, but the problem we're seeing in the courts is that they're treating everything as this sort of non-significant kind of violence now. Um, so I'm sorry, I think we got off track here for a second. Um, what do we do about it? So one thing is to get the empirical proof to say the family courts are getting it wrong, they're denying abuse writ large, and children are suffering. And there's um, not only my research, but some great research by Joanna Silberg and the Leadership Council on Child Abuse and Interpersonal Violence that she's doing that's helping to show that. Um, secondly... Obviously, we try to train judges and we train lawyers. Uh, We try to get the laws aligned with what we know about what children need and what's true. Um, But frankly, I've come to believe that even when the laws are good, as as they are in D.C., um, we have a very strong protective custody and abuse statute. The court ignored it all and said it's violence with a small v, and she's an alienator, and therefore he gets everything. And they just punished her and the teenage girl over and over and over to the point that he got the kids completely, and of course he, like these other abusers, sent her off to therapeutic school because he couldn't handle her, because she hated him. So um, so um, uh, trainings I don't think do it, good statutes I don't think do it. So the next level is to go to the federal level and, and actually get some federal um, – guidance and um, advocacy going, and there there are a couple of bills um, up there on Capitol Hill that try to address this. One of them is trying to address what happens in inter- international cases where um, someone flees an abuser across borders, and then the Hague Convention on International Civil Abduction kicks in and the kid gets sent back even though they were fleeing an abuser. We're trying to get the federal legislation amended on that to address domestic violence more fairly. Um, And the other bill that's circulating that um, I had a hand in helping to draft is to try to uh, educate Congress and get a concurrent resolution by both houses of Congress that basically adopts a few basic and well-known facts as legislative facts like Um, the overlap between domestic violence and child abuse and the um, increased risk to children after separation of the parents and um, things like that, and then have the court adopt all these findings and then recommend to family courts, because the feds cannot govern state family courts, but to recommend to family courts, first of all, that they put safety first, child safety first in their decisions, um, that they only rely on expert opinions when the experts have expertise in abuse, if, the, if it's an abuse case, which is such a simple and obvious uh, guideline, but the courts don't follow it at all. Uh, they rely on people, as you pointed out, who don't have expertise in abuse, who, who often will testify, I don't know child sexual abuse, I'm not an expert in this, but I don't believe it's here. And then the court will rely on that ignorant opinion that it's not here from someone who is a self-proclaimed non-expert. Um, so that happens all the time. Um, so, you know, some very basic um, guidelines that it would be hard to disagree about, that safety has to come first, that experts have to actually be experts, that kind of thing. We think that if we can get Congress to adopt something like that, even though it's non-binding, that we can then, as local advocates, take it to the local legislatures and to the local courts and say, look, these are very basic, minimal good practices. Will you please adopt them? And we think they may help. Um, One reason we think they may help is that Colorado, to its credit, adopted um, something like this where they prioritize safety in their statute. Believe it or not, safety is not explicitly 
the priority in most child custody statutes. You would think it would be the priority anyway for a judge, but apparently it's not. So Colorado made it explicit in their statute, and they also shifted the way the guardians ad litem are governed. And apparently they're seeing some improvement in family courts as a result. So we think this is worth doing and hope, hoping that it will help. We also think that you know the increased data that we're hoping to come up with will help. And frankly, um, we think the media needs to get a grasp of this and start sharing what's really going on, and they've been reluctant to. I think that that's true. I think that's very true. I, I think that what I've, what I've been seeing is that these situations, and of course we, we, media tends to do domestic violence as well, these situations may be reported, but they're reported as some sort of isolated thing. They're not given any basis, uh, you know, any, right. any support as this is actually, you know, sim- system-wide happening. Uh, right, we see it. It's, it's a particular right. incident, and that's it, and isn't this outrageous, and now right. let's move on to the next. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, there, and there's a lot of reason for that. I mean, one of them, there's two big ones. One is that ab- accused abusers sue all the time. So when there's been media about these issues in the past, they have typically been sued by fathers who were, you know, whose cases were described. Okay, so there's you, you're taking a huge risk as a media organization when you tell about specific cases. That's one thing. The second thing is that there's a lot of abusers, you know, everywhere in, in society. Some of them are newspaper editors. Some of them are television editors. <laughs> They're in media. And we've yeah. seen a lot of stories that go up to a certain point, and they're going to put them on, and then all of a sudden the plug gets pulled at the highest level. And, you know, I figure, well, he was accused of abuse in his divorce. Maybe he's an abuser. Maybe his father was an abuser, and he's, you know, in denial. Or or um, he got threatened, you know, with a lawsuit or something else by somebody. You know, it's just – it's not on the merits. We know that, that that happens a lot. So it's a, quite a battle. Um I don't know if you've seen it, but did you go to see Spotlight, the film that's out right now about the Catholic yeah. Church sex scandal? Um, it's about how the Boston Globe broke the story and what it took to break the story, and it's incredible um, template, I think, for our field and for this problem. And I, my dream is to get something like the Boston Globe's research into that story into our story and something like that kind of breaking open of the story. And I think that I think it's possible it's going to take courage on the part of the media, um, as well as probably a lot of full-grown children who survived these horrible cases and who are willing to speak. Because the problem is for moms who are in these cases is that when they speak out to the media, um, they get punished in court and they lose all access to their kids. So case after case, um, you know, we have to advise them not to talk to the media because that's likely to happen, the punishment. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen that in trying to find the information of this case in, in Michigan. I mean, so many people will talk to me, but they won't. They, you know, they're afraid that, of what the judge will do if they actually well, say anything out loud. Everyone's been gagged now. There's a, there's, there's a formal legal gag order, so no one's allowed. No one affiliated with the case is allowed to speak about it. To anybody else. You know, so. I have one other question. Um, I, I I believe that you know economic um, economic uh, I can't even think of the word that I want. But a lot of these things depend on your economic status, mm-hmm. and it seems to me that so many of these custody cases that become so ugly have to do with a dad who has the money to fight it and to buy the lawyers yeah. and. Keep yeah. doing this. Does, yeah. is, is there an economic basis on these these cases, or is it pretty universal no matter what your economic status when it comes to these child custody and abuse situations? It's interesting. I, we don't have any data on this, and again, I would I can only speak very anecdotally. But I, when I used to do these cases with my students, we were only allowed by law to work with poor people, and in D.C., most poor people were African American, and by and large, with the African American clients. I didn't see this pattern, and it was, a, it was a while ago, but I didn't see this pattern clearly until one case came along, and that was a middle-class African-American case where the court refused to believe child sexual abuse, and we took it up on appeal, and we won a, a huge victory on appeal. The child's been safe ever since, um, and that client actually is interviewed in D.B. Leap's video that's posted on YouTube. Um, and Because uh, he, he presented very well. He presented calmly. He presented you know, in a suit and tie. And I thought, the court looked at him and said, eh, I don't think he would do such a gross thing 
to his own daughter. And I don't want to think that. And I want to think that this African-American father really wants to be with his kid because he's a good guy. So I'm going to not believe it. And I'm going to not, you know, protect her because it's not necessary. Um, but by and large, my theory is this. Um, yes, um, men who have, uh, who are abusers and have a lot of money have the, have the funds to do what we call litigation abuse and just beat the hell out of the courts and the, and the opposing party. Um, and the lawyers for, for moms in this situation suffer inordinately and are always outgunned. And, it, and it's very traumatic, by the way, to be a lawyer in one of these cases, because not only are you fighting for, for victims and losing, but you see the system that you believe in, and that's why you became a lawyer, turning against you and turning against what's right and seeming to be very biased and not even very lawful. Like, they do so, such irrational things so often in these cases. So it's very traumatic for lawyers um, in a way that is sort, sort of unique, in addition to the obvious vicarious trauma and direct trauma to the parties. Um, um, but um, the other thing, I think, is that courts are not willing to believe that men who are upper middle class or middle class and present well, and particularly, to be honest, white men who present well, um, could do these horrible things. You know, so like like Judge Gorsica said in the Michigan case, you know, he's an upstanding member of the community. He's a well-known professional. Of course he wouldn't do these terrible things. And that's the attitude. It's very simplistic. And there's a very strong bias that um, men who look like that and who present like that and who are, you know, well-established professionals don't do these things. Whereas women who are upper-middle-class women who make these crazy claims, well, we know, we know all about hysterical females. That's, that's familiar to us. So yeah. I think, frankly, that upper-class women yeah. are getting the worst end of it right now in the courts, in, just yeah. in terms of this issue about custody and abuse. Well, and, and again, you can't get away from the economics. You know, usually right. in these cases, the man has more economic resources than the woman, and so she's put on the, you know, he can, as you mentioned, the right. litigation, he can keep filing papers and filing papers and filing right. papers, but every time he does, and just she wear has out. to find somebody. Yeah, she and has wear to find, out her she lawyers, and she doesn't money. have the money. And they yep. run out of funds, and they also run out of energy. It's like a losing battle. They can't do anything. Plus, they have a client who's traumatized and is very difficult to work with, and they're not helping her, and she's getting more traumatized. And it's just this hopeless, nightmarish story. It's and very hard for people to becomes, take these cases. The more traumatized she becomes, right. the less in control and in charge, and together she appears before the court. It's, right. I, I, I think it's right. just... And, and to be honest, a lot of the lawyers don't believe the child sexual abuse, even when they're representing the mother who's telling them that. I've seen a lot of lawyers who are very skeptical and very wary, don't trust their own client on these issues. So it's, you know, there's, there's such a degree of taboo and, and, disbel- and unwillingness to believe child sexual abuse across the culture. It's very hard to find good lawyers who are smart and dedicated and are willing to entertain the reality of this stuff. And then we'll, we'll stand up to have the energy and the finances and the resources and the time to stand up to this kind of litigation, which is all-consuming. You know, the one case I did at a trial level like this, which is the one that we won on appeal but lost at trial, it consumed me completely. And, I, and, and this was supposed to be only a fraction of my job. It consumed me completely, and it, it's partly emotional as well as you know, time in it itself, intellectual. These cases eat you alive emotionally and intellectually. And I think that's the other thing is judges get eaten alive emotionally and intellectually. They hate them. And one way of reacting to hating them is to sort of kind of make it go away by not believing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a kind of vicarious trauma. Yeah. And and too bad about that poor child. child. I mean, what we're doing, in effect, is hanging these children out to dry because we're getting exhausted or our funds are exhausted. And again, we come right back to the original problem, the abuser. Yep. Who wears everyone you know, out. So all of this, all of this effort, all yep. of this energy, all of this time, money, trauma, and it all comes back to that one person who abuses. Who's, who's con- and who's controlling everybody through abuse, yep. whether yep. it's litigation abuse, violent abuse, emotional abuse, brainwashing abuse, which they do use, um, and just intimidating. They make it not worth anyone's while to stand up for them. to them. That's the other thing. That's what I've seen, is that when you stand up to an abuser, if you're a judge or an evaluator or a psychologist or a lawyer, you pay such a high price. You get all these threats. You get lawsuits. You get, I mean, the good evaluators the are constantly getting ethical you, I mean, bar, they'll, they'll They're constantly right. getting psychology complaints filed against them by abusers because they stand up for kids and they stand up to abusers. 
so you're yeah. you're so worn out and you're so destroyed professionally all the time because that's what abusers do. That's their specialty. It is really well, and I've hard seen to combat. this even in 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 uh, cases like at work where you have a truly difficult person. People will mm-hmm. bend over backwards. Your employers to will go to them. the other employees saying, yep. will you go ahead and let her have this? Because they're yes. exhausted. Oh, we see that. It's easier we to give them at... what they want than to have to Absolutely. deal with them. We see, that all the, we see that at work in my work as well. Um, not at DV Leap, but, you know, in, in my other job, we've seen that. And um, it, it, it has some of the same dynamics. Yeah. Yeah, and these people tend, I mean, they are resourceful little buggers. I mean, they'll find every organization they can complain to, you know, like mm-hmm. the Bar Association. Yep. I mean, I wonder how many complaints have been filed against, you know, the the ex-wife's attorney, you know. Right, but <laughs> mostly simply. against the evaluators because um, they can really hang up their licenses with the state boards. And so that happens all the time to the ones who are good. Yeah. Uh, it's just kind of a it, regular just, thing. So, well, I wish you tremendous luck, and I really want to stay informed on your research and what you're doing. And I also, as you're talking about, uh, you know, the reporting on this, uh, you know, my undergraduate degree is in journalism, and I belong to a wonderful organization about with women in journalism, and we need to talk. <laughs> Absolutely. We need to talk let's, about this because let's, I think let's do you're that absolutely right. Maybe you can help break it open. I mean, you're, you're yeah, helping today. Well, you know, at least I might be able to help bring it to people who have the capability of breaking that open. So I, mm-hmm. I really would like to explore that with you. Absolutely. Uh, I, you know, I mean, even you know, my heart goes out to to these poor families and these poor children um, who are just, as you said, hung out to dry in these situations because nobody either has the education or the strength um, or the will to keep fighting these really, really difficult men. And, yes, mm-hmm. I know that women can be difficult, too. Yes, I know women can be abusers, too. But, I mean, let's face it, we're talking about men here. The, ma- the majority of the time, yep. The, the majority, majority of the time. Yeah. So let's let's forget about, you know, the political correctness and let's talk about what it is, and that is a bunch of men out there who are causing a lot of these problems and the families yeah. are suffering. And the so, sad thing um, about it is that a lot of these men suffered this kind of abuse as kids. And they grow up, and they, well, they inflict it on their families, and, and nobody sure protected them. I am sure they have their own pain, and I'm sure that they're, yep. I mean, the, I, I understand that. But the fact is we're talking about families and children here. Right. And, and you know, so, I mean. I, right, and, you know, my point is, is that the court, if the courts don't intervene, it just keeps handed, being handed on from generation to generation. Right. They have to and when it. the courts intervene by doing things like taking away the mother's right to be with her children, that's not what, what I mean. The courts are, you know, <laughs> right. I mean they they are just making it so much worse. I mean, I can't that's imagine right. as a child being with a protective parent and then having some judge who knows neither of you, none of you, say, "Okay, now you have to go away from that protective parent and go live right. 24/7 with the person that you feel threatened by and the person right. who makes you uh, really right. hurt." Um, right. I just can't imagine that, and I see so many judges, even and, and women judge. I mean, I, I I would think that women judges would be more empathetic to this, but I don't. I think a judge is a judge. No, I don't. I, don't, I think they're not. No. And I, you know, to be honest, I think there's a lot of denial going on. I think probably some judges have had some experiences in their past that they're in denial of, and they're inflicting their denial on the families they see. They cannot open themselves up to the truth because it would require them to open themselves to their own pain. They're not ready to do it. And so this is how, this is what denial looks like, is how they enact yeah. it on the families. So there's that, there's vicarious trauma, and then there's a lot of bias and a lot of simplic- simplisticness. He looks like a nice guy. Everybody thinks he's a nice guy. Therefore, he's not doing anything. He's got it together. He's got it together. Right, yep. right, right. Yep. The image is the reality. Well, it's not. Image is not yep. reality. And that's, you know, if we if we could force judges to know one thing, I think that would probably be it. That would be the most fruitful thing Joan, to have them know. I'm looking at our clock, and I cannot believe <laughs> okay. that we've talked for an hour. Um, please keep me informed. I'll, I'll keep uh, you know up on your your research. I can't wait to see what you come up with. You're looking at Great. what three years to have this completed, maybe? Uh, now we have another two years. It's been a year. Two years. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, this is important so, work, and and uh, you know I congratulate you, DV Leap. I you know it's it's just wonderful that you're doing this work because it sorely needs to be done. Joan, I, thank I you end so the much. Show with with a quote uh, today, I have a quote from uh, a, a website I know nothing about, but it's called Unstoppable Mothers. The judge gave my children's father temporary custody after I have been the primary placement parent since birth. 
This temporary custody is two years and counting. My ex was arrested for battery and convicted of domestic violence. All this is perfectly acceptable to this judge. Why? Thank you, Joan, for joining us. Um, again, Joan, Joan, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, you want to give out your email? Yeah, it's J Meyer, M-E-I-E-R, at law, L-A-W, dot G-W-U, dot E-D-U. If you're looking for a consult, legal assistance, I would prefer that you go through our website, and that's info at dvleap.org. Thanks so much. That's org. Right. Joan, thank you for being with us. I I really appreciate it and learned a lot from your your conversation. Thanks for doing the subject, Heather, and for your intelligence and thoughtfulness and caring about it. Oh, wow. Can I have that in writing? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Join us next week. Three women, three ways.